You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's word to the book of Romans. We're continuing through uh, the early chapters of Romans. We're still in uh, chapter two. Lord willing, uh, we will complete the chapter today. Uh, Our sermon text is Romans chapter two, verses 17 through 29. As is our custom, we're gonna begin reading at the portion uh, we talked about uh, just previously. So we're gonna begin our reading in Romans chapter two at verse 12. And if you remember uh, the sermons in the past few weeks you'll, uh, from the series, you'll remember that um, Paul is laying out his case pretty much just indicting everybody, uh, Gentiles and Jews alike. His, his driving point, the thing that he wants you and, and me to recognize is that we all need uh, the gospel. And so he continues on this mission um, this morning. We're going to begin reading, reading at Romans chapter 2, verse 12. This is God's inspired word. For all who have sinned without the law will perish, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, 
not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord, we um, would stand before you in humility, and we would ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us today. It comes to our attention that anyone can take a text and ask what it says, come to some interpretation of the text. But Lord, you have said that what you do before us in the preaching of your word is spiritual, that you use preaching to transform your people. Sometimes you rebuke us, O Lord. Sometimes you instruct us. Sometimes you encourage us. Lord, we do pray that you would search our hearts. We do pray that you would apply this, your word, to us. We'd ask for your help. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. There have uh, been many famous explorers throughout history who have charted new territories and discovered new lands and made significant contributions to the field of geography and navigation. And some of these explorers have uh, inspired us. They've captured our imaginations. You know that Christopher Columbus is widely credited for discovering the new world in 1492. Ferdinand Magellan led the first expedition to circumnavigate the globe. Maybe explorers from Modern times also come to your mind. You may think of Lewis and Clark who led an expedition to explore the Western territories of the United States in the early 19th century. Or maybe you think of Neil Armstrong who became the first person to walk on the moon. These are just a few examples of some of the most famous explorers in history. But there are many others who have made significant contributions to the field of exploration and discovery. Well, in our text, the Apostle Paul seeks to get his readers to explore their hearts. You see, he wants them to make a discovery. He wants everybody to discover that they need the gospel. Paul is particularly interested in reaching religious people who are lost and don't know it. People who are placing their confidence in things that are outward and physical. In verse 29, you see that Paul wants them to know that being one of God's people is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. This passage is warning readers to guard themselves from the dangers of false religious confidence. And it begins by describing the danger of thinking that you don't need the gospel simply because you possess the truth. Don't place your confidence in knowledge. That's our first heading. Don't place your confidence in knowledge. There's a lot of talk in our society about what it means to be born privileged. Being privileged means you have certain advantages 
or benefits or opportunities that aren't available to everyone. And they say that privilege can come in many forms, uh, forms such as race or gender or socioeconomic status, education level, or even physical ability. Well, every religious-minded Jew in New Testament times realized that in respect to the truth, he was privileged. And that's because they possessed the oracles of God. They possessed the scriptures, the Bible. Paul describes this sense of privilege in verses 17 and 18. He says, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Paul is addressing a Jew but, but it's not the person's land origin that Paul is interested in here. He's addressing someone who's identified or finds his identity in the Mosaic law. This is someone who prides himself on belonging to the covenant community in belonging to what is the ancient church, us, Thousands of years ago. Someone who attends synagogue every week. Someone who memorizes scripture and sits under the word of God. And you'll notice that Paul says that the person possesses five privileges. He relies upon the law. He brags about his relationship with God. He knows the will of God. He's able to identify what is morally superior, and he's instructed by the law. This person thought of themselves as having special status simply because they possessed the scriptures. Thoughts of being one of God's people filled him with pride. He bragged about being one of God's favorites and felt superior over others. He prided himself on knowing God's revealed will and being able to make superior moral judgments. You see, he had been instructed by the law and arrogantly stood in judgment over others. In verse 19, Paul continues by saying, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, this person thought of himself as a guide in a light, someone who could correct and teach others. He looked at people outside of the covenant community with condescension and scorn. He's self-righteous, self-centered, and self-deceived. Sadly, he could see the sin in others, but he couldn't see his own sin. He could see how other other people were in need of forgiveness, but he couldn't see his own need for forgiveness. He couldn't see his need for the gospel. Paul wants this type of person to see their need. He's praying for a breakthrough. 
He wants a breakthrough. He wants them to discover their need. So Paul asks a series of questions. In verse 21, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know the scriptures. You're familiar with God's law, with his word. You know that stealing, adultery, and idolatry are contrary to God's word. But even if you haven't done these things overtly, spiritually, we're all guilty. While you preach against stealing, do you envy? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you watch pornography or indulge in other tantalizing images? Maybe through Netflix, maybe through social media. Have you lusted after someone in your heart? God's word shows you the perfect moral character of God and your own sinfulness. It shows you that you need forgiveness. It points you to your need for repentance and faith in Christ. It points you to Jesus who offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But the person Paul has been addressing in our text is self-righteous. Someone who boasted about being religious and keeping God's law. Someone who thought of himself as a guide and went around correcting others and pointing out their sins. Meanwhile, the hypocrisy of this person was clear to the unbelieving world around them. In verse 23, Paul says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul wants his readers to know that the Gentiles were blaspheming God because of how some of the Jews were treating them. They noticed their self-righteousness and arrogance and how they preached one thing and did another. Hypocrisy erodes trust and respect because it creates a discrepancy between what a person says and what they actually do. When someone claims to hold certain values or beliefs but acts in a way that contradicts them, it can make it difficult for others to trust and respect that person. Jews and Gentiles both need the gospel. The Gentiles can't excuse themselves by claiming that they didn't know God's law. And the Jews can't exonerate themselves by saying that they knew the law well. In the end, the question is same to both. Do you heed what you know? Are you blameless according to the law? If not, you need the gospel. 
You see, Paul wants his readers to know that you can't evade accountability by claiming to be religious. There's no merit in mere knowledge. And you won't be saved by some religious ceremony or rite. Don't place your confidence in religious rites. That's our second heading. Don't place your confidence in religious rites. Sometimes we suffer from having a false sense of security. You believe that you're safe or protected from harm or danger when in reality you're not. You can have a perception or feeling of safety that is not based in actual evidence or reality. For example, a person may feel that they are immune to a disease because they've never gotten sick, but in reality, they've never been exposed to the disease. Or a person may think that their personal information is safe online because they have a strong password but they're actually vulnerable to hacking because they use the same password on multiple accounts. Many of the Jews in New Testament times supposed that they were secure because they were part of God's chosen people through circumcision. They believed that somehow circumcision would secure their salvation. The American theologian Charles Hodge provides several quotes from ancient rabbis to prove that this was the case. In his commentary on the books of Moses, Rabbi Minichem wrote, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Another said, Circumcision saves from hell. And the Midrash Tillam says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Scripture proves that these rabbis are wrong. Students of the Bible will remember Esau or Janus and Jambres or the sons of Eli, all of which were circumcised but appear to be reprobate. Genesis 17 records the institution of circumcision and tells us that it's an initiatory rite of the old covenant. Circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant, but not its essence. It was God's visible mark of ownership. It was the sign that you were part of God's covenant people. It applied the promises and obligations of the covenant and called people who received it to personal repentance and faith. But the sign was only effectual for salvation if it was accompanied by saving faith. The sign was of no value to the lawbreaker who was relying on rites and rituals for their salvation rather than the promised Messiah. In verse 25, Paul writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
Circumcision was of great value if one truly understood and lived by its intended significance. But if their life was consistently inconsistent with their profession, they're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. Paul continues his argument in verse 26 by saying, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Paul's not exactly saying that uncircumcised Gentiles can keep the law, but rather that if they did, God would consider them circumcised. And he continues by saying these uncircumcised law keepers could then be called to bear witness in judgment against the circumcised who have broken the law. What matters isn't possession of the law, or the external act of circumcision, but obedience that springs from faith. Paul wants to reach people who have a false sense of security. People who think they're immune to God's judgment because of their religious affiliation or because they've taken part in some religious rite. In applying this to ourselves, all we have to do is substitute the word circumcision with the word baptism. After all, the covenant of grace is the same in substance in both the Old and New Testament, and baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of that covenant. You see, people can make the grave mistake of thinking that their baptism guarantees their salvation, but it does not. The great mistake people make when they're asked about their relationship with God is citing their religious affiliations as evidence of their relationship with him. Does that make sense? For example, maybe you ask, how do you know that you're saved? And they reply by telling you what church they belong to. People have a false sense of security when they think they're saved because they've been baptized at some point or because they're a member of a church or because they've raised their hand or went forward at some evangelistic event. And they typically make the mistake of citing these things as evidence of their salvation because they don't know any better. Or because that's what the person is trusting in. As Paul addresses the Romans, he's driving home his point. He wants his message to be heard loud and clear. What matters isn't possession of the law or the external act of circumcision, but obedience that springs from faith. Paul wants you to place your confidence in Jesus Christ. That's our third heading. Place your confidence in Jesus Christ. 
it's not always easy to determine whether something is authentic. In fact, it can be a very challenging task. It often requires careful observation and critical thinking as well as some expertise. There was a man who had inherited a painting from his grandmother um, who had been an art collector. And it was a beautiful painting, in fact. It was a landscape. And the painting had been signed by a famous artist. And he believed that the painting was most likely valuable and an authentic piece. But he wanted to make sure before he attempted to sell it, so he decided to have it examined by an expert. This guy took the painting to a well-known art authentication company and presented it to an expert who specialized in this particular artist's work. The expert carefully examined the painting. He analyzed everything about it. He checked the brush strokes, the color palette, and all of the other important details. And after a thorough examination, the expert determined that the painting was not authentic, but rather a skilled copy. Of course, the man was disappointed to hear the news Uh, But he was grateful for the expert's honesty and professionalism, and he decided that he was going to keep the painting, even though it wasn't authentic, uh, because it reminded him of his grandmother and her passion uh, for art. Well, as our text continues, Paul says that circumcision can't determine spiritual authenticity He gets right to the heart of the matter and tells us who the true people of God are. In verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, nor nor is circumcision outward and physical. You see, true Jewishness is not something outwardly visible, but inward and invisible. Uh, One can be a Jew ethnically, but not spiritually. Paul says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And then he continues his line of thinking in verse 29 by saying, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's arguing that the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles before God's heavenly court. To claim that Jews sinned from time to time is one thing, but to say that they failed to keep the commandments unto justification is quite another. Most people don't understand that perfection is required to be seen as righteous before the Lord. They believe that sincerity will be enough. They think that they'll be found righteous in God's sight sight as long as they try to obey him. And the Jews thought that they could always fall back on circumcision or other ritual observances that were believed to cover a multitude of sins or even guarantee one a place in heaven. 
Throughout the Old Testament, we always see that even the best righteousness human beings can produce is insufficient for peace with God. God alone can provide what is needed. The Jews were never to base their standing before the Lord on their own works of obedience. Instead, they were to thank God for his work in their lives, repent as the Mosaic law pointed to their sins, and look to the Lord to provide a robe of righteousness needed to be just in his sight. Paul's statement about true circumcision being a matter of the heart by the Spirit wasn't new. And any of his readers who were familiar with the Old Testament would have been familiar with the language that he used. They would have remembered the words of Moses or the prophet Jeremiah, both of which spoke of circumcising the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses spoke to the people of God, saying, The Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And Jeremiah exhorted his people to deal with their hearts by saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Jews who rightly understood The scriptures knew that the only way God declares people sufficiently righteous to be citizens of heaven is through spirit-wrought faith and spirit-wrought faith alone. They knew that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. To be God's people in the truest and fullest sense There had to be circumcision of the heart, a separation of one's love and commitment away from this world and unto the things of God. A heart cut out from this world to love and trust the Lord. It's this kind of cutting that makes someone truly circumcised, not a mere mark in the flesh with a knife. And this heart circumcision is possible without physical circumcision. How? Colossians 2, 9 through 11 describes how it becomes a reality only in Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Outward religious conformity can't save. The spirit of God must transform you inwardly. This can happen through the gospel which is powerful enough to save both Jew and Gentile. A few years ago, a man uh, named John went missing in a large city. 
His family and friends were frantic with worry and they searched everywhere for him. But it seemed like he had just vanished. There was no trace of him. So they filed a missing person report with the police and the entire community rallied together to search for John. Days turned into weeks and there was still no sign of him. And his loved ones began to lose hope when a woman named Sarah who lived several blocks away noticed something strange in an alleyway nearby and she discovered John disheveled and disoriented lying there on the ground. And she immediately called the police and an ambulance arrived to take John to the hospital. It turned out that he had been wandering the streets for days. He was dehydrated. He was delirious. He had no memory of how he ended up in the alley, but he was relieved to be found and reunited with his family. Like John's family, the Apostle Paul wants to reach the lost. Not someone who's lost physically, but someone who's lost spiritually. Paul challenges his readers to search their hearts. He asks probing questions like, what is your confidence in? Where does your confidence lie? Does it rely on your knowledge of God's word or your religious affiliation? Or does it rest in some experience that you've had in the past? The object of your faith should be Christ alone. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. In this passage, Paul warns covenant people to guard themselves from the dangers of false religious confidence. Everybody needs the gospel. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. And we thank you that it covers so many things. Lord, you come along and you encourage us. You come along and make us dance for joy. And other times you come to us and you cause us to search our hearts. Oh Lord, would you do just that? And even more, Lord, would you reveal to us what is there? And would you help us to see our need for Christ? And would you help us to grow with ever more gratitude for the gospel and what you've given us in a free pardon in Christ. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.